Home is where you feel safe. For me, home is a uh, family, number one. Uh, my parents, let me be specific. Home is uh, a sense of belonging to a land, a country, uh, to people, to community. Home is where I feel safe, loved, and cared for. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, your weekly Lent and Easter podcast on refugee welcome in the Episcopal Church and across the United States. I'm Kendall Martin. And I'm Allison Duvall. Thanks for tuning in for Episode 5. This podcast is an offering from Episcopal Migration Ministries, the Refugee Resettlement and Welcome Ministry of the Episcopal Church. You can learn about our work on www.episcopalmigrationministries.org and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we are EMM Refugees. This podcast is part of the Good Book Club initiative, which invites all Episcopalians to come together to read all of Luke and Acts throughout Lent and Easter 2018. You can find the daily readings, resources, and much more at www.goodbookclub.org or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Good Book Club. This week, the Good Book Club takes us from the Gospel of Luke chapter 15 verse 1 through chapter 18 verse 7. We're so excited to share this week's reflection from the Reverend Canon E. Mark Stevenson, who is the Director of Episcopal Migration Ministries. Following his reflection, we'll welcome Lacey Bromell, the Refugee and Immigration Policy Advisor in the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations, for a chat about her office, clarification on immigration terms, and resources for how we can all get more involved in the Ministry of Advocacy. We hope you enjoy this week's reflection. Loss can be a horrible experience. By and large, we human beings do not like loss. In Luke chapter 15 and the two plus chapters that follow, Jesus tells several stories that use loss, gain, and power over that which we possess to discuss our relationship with each other and with God. The first two parables he gives us, those of the lost sheep and the lost coin, These two parables are told in part to show just how far God will go for us. They declare our value in creation. They proclaim the joy of turning our life over to God. And they set the stage for a series of stories that call us to evaluate our reaction to loss, our own sense of value, our sense of relationship, and our understanding of what it is that is truly powerful in life. We see this calling surface in the actions of the prodigal son, of course, including in the response of his elder brother, as both grip tightly to the desire to have what is mine right now. The unjust steward fears a loss of status and considers himself to have greater rights than others. The tale of the rich man and Lazarus points us more explicitly to the value of the divine over earthly treasure and to the realization that we should pay attention now to that which God reveals to us. We then hear that forgiveness and not revenge should be our guide, that a little bit of faith can change the world, and that our responsibilities to others actually really do matter. We read that glory and thanksgiving are to be given to God above all else, that human impatience just gets in the way, and that prayer pays off in the end. 
Finally, Jesus grounds the calling to an understanding of value, relationship, and power in stories of humility. Humility, the intentional choice to lose that which forced our exit from the garden at the beginning of time, the desire to be gods ourselves. The world is currently facing the largest refugee crisis in history. More than 65 million people have lost their homes and way of life because some other group of persons has decided that one life is of lesser value than another. People in positions of power have decided that glory belongs to the mighty, that there is no time like the present to take what they desire as their own, and those who are different than they may be treated with contempt. Many who are in a position to help are overwhelmed, yet continue to minister with the faith of a Christ-empowered mustard seed. But some who could help, perhaps historically have helped, are choosing to walk away and to be thankful that they are not as that other is. I cannot help but think that this last sad fact grieves the one who himself sought out and found the lost by the hardwood of the cross. Jesus proclaims that every person is a child of God. Each of us has a home in the kingdom of heaven and in the bosom of our Creator. Value comes not by that which we possess or conquer or separate out, but in a loving relationship with each other and with Christ. With God, with each other, true joy is to be found. So, Kendall, what I really was thinking about as I was listening to Marcus' reflection was that it's so rare for Episcopalians to decide that altogether at one time we're going to read the same book of the Bible, the same passages. Because, um, you know, in church on Sunday, we, we're all following the lectionary, but that doesn't mean that we're all sitting down together and reading a gospel from start to finish. So I'm just, I'm thankful for the Good Book Club as an idea and how it's bringing us all together to read scripture at the same time. What, what did you think about it? I think out of this reflection, the line that really stuck with me was the, we then hear that forgiveness and not revenge should be our guide, that a little bit of faith can change the world, and that our responsibilities to others actually really do matter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, you know, that line speaks so much to the work of refugee resettlement. You know, our belief that we're all in relationship with one another, and that it matters that we care for one another, mm -hmm. and that we have to hold steadfast to our faith in people's abilities to do the right thing, especially in such an important moment as the one that, you know, we've been facing with the issues around refugee resettlement. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Allison, in the first couple of episodes, we covered the global refugee crisis, durable solutions to the refugee crisis, and an overview of the United States Refugee Admissions Program. One of the things you mentioned was that the program has had long-standing bipartisan support, and to date, more refugees have been resettled by Republican administrations than by Democratic ones. That's right. So why don't we go over the bipartisan history of the modern United States Refugee Admissions Program? The 1980 Refugee Act was passed unanimously by the Senate in late 1979, and it was later signed into law by President Jimmy Carter in early 1980. When President Reagan was inaugurated in January 1981, 
it was the Cuban influx into South Florida that was the big thing going on at the time. And it led President Reagan to announce the creation of a new task force on immigration and refugee policy. And it was this was founded on the premise that better policies and practices were needed to respond in order to preserve our country's legacy of welcome. The Mariel Boatlift of April to October of 1980 had been the domestic immigration policy backdrop of the end of President Carter's administration, and the openness to Cubans continued, resulting in over 125,000 Cuban refugees being admitted over a period spanning both the Carter and Reagan presidencies. At the same time, the continued pressure of the Indo-Chinese refugee crisis, as well as the Khmer Rouge genocide in Cambodia, were the main foreign policy backdrop for Reagan's refugee policy. And the admission numbers largely reflect those situations, as well as the continued commitment to provide safe haven for those fleeing from behind the Iron Curtain in the context of the Cold War. Yeah, it's so important to understand all that was shaping our country's immigration and refugee policy at the time. So let's continue. All of this was in an historical context where Reagan's openness to refugees fleeing ideologies that were considered antithetical to American values, that was paired with a relatively generous direction on pathways to status and citizenship for folks who were considered quote-unquote illegal immigrants. Um, It was a humane counterpoint to conservative policies on stricter immigration enforcement. So foreign policy and national security experts argue that it is in America's national security interest to do the same today, to demonstrate to terrorists and those who would wish us harm that their ideologies are antithetical to what America stands for. And we push back against those ideologies by welcoming victims of those groups who have you know, one faith or have come from all faith backgrounds or have no faith at all. In this context, the first refugee admission ceiling that was set by President Reagan in what was fiscal year 1982 was 140,000. So as the Cuban crisis abated toward the end of Reagan's first term, his admission ceilings lowered because there was less of an immediate crisis. But then in his second term, he increased the refugee admission ceiling again in response to new crises. And under George H.W. Bush, the annual ceiling fluctuated from a low of 125,000 to a high of 142,000. And these numbers were generally higher than the end of the Reagan era because they were responsive to growing complexity in refugee flows, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. And while some would argue that President George H.W. Bush's record on refugee protection is extremely complex, especially regarding the omission of particular populations, it is clear he maintained the commitment to the American legacy of welcoming those fleeing tyranny and oppression through the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. President George W. Bush similarly maintained this commitment of welcome to refugees throughout his presidency. On June 20, 2002, then-Secretary of State Colin Powell said, The Bush administration will not let the attacks for September 11th and the continuing threat from terrorism shake our nation's commitment to refugees. We will continue to be the world's leader in refugee resettlement. By the end of his term, President Bush set the refugee admissions goal at 80,000 refugees. 
That's such an important period in time for us to hold in our minds as we kind of compare the recent history in the resettlement program to what's going on today. So what you have throughout this period in the 1980s and 1990s, regardless of the geopolitics or what was going on domestically, is this faithful and steady bipartisan commitment to the full implementation of that 1980 Refugee Act that we spoke about at the beginning of today's episode. And that 1980 Act helped to construct the USRAP into a network of agencies across the United States who provide structured support to help refugees fully integrate into their new communities and find success here. You know, agencies like Episcopal Migration Ministries. Now let's move on to the main event of today's episode, our interview with Lacey Bromell, Refugee and Immigration Policy Advisor in the Office of Government Relations for the Episcopal Church, who will speak to the bipartisan support of the refugee program and how you can be involved. So listeners, Kendall and I have the pleasure of working with Lacey on an almost daily basis. She's one of our closest colleagues and one of our great friends. So we're excited to introduce her to you and would encourage any of you across the Episcopal Church to learn more about our church's ministry of advocacy. Go to advocacy.episcopalchurch.org and sign up to be part of the Episcopal Public Policy Network. And you'll get to know these amazing servants in our church, like Lacey, who will help you lift your voice to your elected leaders on the Hill um, and also give you all the tools you need to be a prophetic witness in your local communities. So now over to Lacey. We're so excited to be in the studio today with our colleague Lacey Bromell. And um, we don't know that our podcast audience knows this, but we record this from different locations across the country. So I'm Allison. I'm in Lexington. And I am Lacey and so happy to be here with you all coming from Washington, D.C., I'm Kendall, and I'm in Richmond, Virginia. And because Lacey's in D.C., you might hear some background noise from a demonstration that's going on right outside the doors of her office. Um, So that's just one of the wonderful ambient sounds we get to bring into today's interview. So Lacey, can you tell us about your role and the role of the Office of Government Relations for the Episcopal Church? The Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations um, was actually established in 1978, and it's been around since then in the same office, um, right on Capitol Hill across from the Supreme Court. And our office is responsible for representing the priorities of the Episcopal Church to the government and policy community in Washington, D.C. So we aim to shape and influence policy and legislation on critical issues, and we highlight the voices and experiences of Episcopalians and Anglicans globally as we do that work. And we are on the staff of the presiding bishop, but all of our work that we do, all the advocacy issues that we prioritize, and what we bring to Congress and the administration are all policy resolutions um, that come from general convention and executive council. And those are the primary legislative and governing bodies of the church. And in your role as the refugee and immigration policy analyst for the Office of Government Relations, what exactly do you do? So our office has several different um, policy advisors that focus on specific areas 
issue areas, really, to bring the Episcopal Church's voice to policy creation. So we have one policy analyst that focuses on domestic issues such as creation care or poverty issues or racial reconciliation, and one policy analyst that focuses on international issues like foreign aid or gender-based violence. And my role is responsible on focusing on refugee and immigration issues. So that means that I track legislation. I follow legislation that's been introduced. I help sometimes to craft legislation and offer the Episcopal Church's input on pieces of legislation that might be introduced. I meet directly with members of Congress and their staff to bring Episcopal viewpoints to that you know, policy crafting process. So a big part of my job is building relationships with those folks on Capitol Hill. And I also inform Episcopalians and Episcopal leaders about current migration and refugee policies that are happening on the federal level. Um, it's also important I should note that our office only focuses on federal level policy. So we're certainly aware of what's going on on the state level, and sometimes that definitely impacts what's happening in D.C., but we do just focus on federal level policy. Gotcha. Your job is so interesting, and I think it's exciting. It was exciting for me when I was at first at my first general convention and I learned that our church had an advocacy office. And and I learned through my experiences at general conventions how much policy our church has on immigration, on comprehensive immigration reform, on refugee policy. And I was wondering if you could help our listeners understand the different uh, definitions of immigrant versus refugee versus migrant. Could you help us kind of piece those out? Yes, absolutely. It's a really important thing to know. Um, there are a lot of different um, legal ways, legal pathways to enter the United States. And it's good to know what we mean when we say the word immigrant or the word refugee or the word asylum seeker. Um, so to give you sort of the, the wide angle view is that um, immigration to the United States is generally granted for three reasons, and that's employment, family reunification, and humanitarian protection. And the U.S. system, it's important to realize that it's highly regulated and it's subject to numerical limitations, eligibility requirements, all of that kind of um, those sorts of restrictions. So it really can take decades for someone to enter the United States uh, through those channels. So a refugee, for example, I'll use this example, is someone who would enter the United States through a humanitarian pathway, through a humanitarian um, visa by being approved to go through the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. And a refugee is a type of immigrant. So you could think of it in terms of um, all refugees are immigrants, but not all immigrants are refugees. Because refugees is a very specific population, someone that has had to have registered with UNHCR and been proven to legally be a refugee in international law. And then they must undergo security screening, a long application process, medical screenings, cultural orientation before they're admitted to the United States and then would partner with someone like an affiliate of Episcopal Migration Ministries in their resettlement process. Really helpful. We actually talked about that. Um, it was a few episodes ago, episodes one and two. Oh, good. Excellent. Um, and then, of course, the other pathways that I mentioned of employment or family reunification, there are visa opportunities for people to apply through those pro through those processes. Um, any immigrant could apply through that. Also, of course, 
people come here as students or, um, you know, seeking uh, general support, such as to feed their families or obtain jobs. You know, I mentioned the family unification, and I think that's a really important one to know about. Um, sometimes you might hear the word chain migration right now. That's a big topic in the sort of current policy debate. But chain migration actually means family reunification. It's the process by which people who are here, um, who are legal immigrants, can apply for their family members to come to the United States and reunite with them. And the Episcopal Church um, really centers its immigration policy around family reunification and the protection and the unity of, of the family unit. Lucy, one thing I'd like to touch on is that EMM resettles people with refugee status as well as SIV status. Um, and in fact, one of the folks that we interview on this podcast, Abdul Sabor, came to this country through the SIV program. So could you break down for our listeners and explain the importance of continued support for the SIV program? Sure, absolutely. So the SIV program um, stands for the Special immigrant visa program. And this is actually um, a certain allotment of visas that are provided each year through allocations from Congress. These visas allow wartime allies to be resettled in the United States. So to give you a little history, in 2008, a program was enacted for Iraqi translators, interpreters, and workers that worked with our allies abroad. And that program actually um, stopped accepting new applications in September 2014. And now Iraqi wartime allies apply just directly to the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, the resettlement program, through what's known as the Direct Access Program. And then in 2009, Congress passed the Afghan Allies Protection Act of 2009. And this provides for special immigrant visas to Afghans who have worked with the United States as translators or interpreters or employed by or on behalf of the U.S. government in Afghanistan. And that program is still in operation and allocates, this year they allocated 3,500 Afghan special immigrant visas for this fiscal year. A couple additional things to note on this program is that it's absolutely critical that we essentially keep our promises to these people who have volunteered and worked for the U.S. government. Um, and many, if you speak with veterans or folks who have or are currently serving and have experienced the assistance that their translators or interpreters or other partners from the region can provide, it's absolutely critical to their missions. So it's important that the U.S. keeps their promise and that when those individuals are subject to persecution or maybe their families are being kidnapped or different um, situations like that, that we make sure that we're able to protect those individuals for what they've done for our country. And a way to influence that process is by contacting your members of Congress and telling them that you support additional special immigrant visas for Afghans. Lacey, thank you so much. That's so helpful to have that broken down and that clarified. Could you tell us a little bit about how the Office of Government Relations engages Episcopalians in its work? I, I know about the Episcopal Public Policy Network, and I'd love for you to share that with our listeners. Absolutely. So 
as I said, our office, one of the primary roles that I have is to build relationships on Capitol Hill and make sure that the um, Episcopal voice and our policies are represented in the policymaking process. But the other primary um, role that I have is to educate, equip, and engage Episcopalians in doing the work of advocacy themselves. Uh, we have what Allison mentioned is the Episcopal Public Policy Network, or the EPPN, and that's a grassroots network of Episcopalians from across the country that advocates directly to their members of Congress on policy issues. Our office, we send about weekly emails to the Episcopal Public Policy Network to keep them informed about what's happening on issues that they care about. So we sort of give a quick update about what the current debate is, why this issue is important right now. And then we always share what the Episcopal policy is on that issue so you know exactly what the Episcopal Church has said on whatever issue we're talking about. And then we have what we call our action alert system. So we draft a sample letter for people to send to their members of Congress about, you know, whatever issue of the day that it might be. And so on our website, you can just type in your name, your address, your zip code, and our system directly sends that letter to your members of Congress. And we really encourage people to edit these letters. They're editable, but we sort of give you the, you know, the the backbone really of what the policy ask is, but we really encourage people to tell their own story about, you know, why, for example, that they welcome refugees. Maybe they have, you know, maybe they have a refugee neighbor or have, you know, worked with someone in their local community that makes it clear for them why they care about this issue. So we encourage people to to make it personal as they're doing that. And how can folks get involved with the EPPN efforts? So to join our action alert email list, um, you can get on our website, which is advocacy.episcopalchurch.org. And on that website, um, we have resources. Again, you can, you know, enter your name into joining that listserv. Um, and we also are really active on social media. So we invite you to find us on Facebook, Episcopal Public Policy Network, or on Twitter, which I personally love and really enjoy. So you could join us there. And we're at the EPPN. That's excellent. And I know our listeners can probably hear the demonstration in the background. So we really feel like we're there with you in D.C., Lacey. It's pretty cool. That's exactly right. So yeah, I will just say, you know, our office, we're right in the middle of the Supreme Court and the, you know, Senate office building. So there's often all kinds of action. It's not just, you know, boring policy papers or, you know, tracking legislation. It's quite vibrant here. And, and we really love that. Well, and I really hope that our listeners, when they make a trip to D.C., that they also do connect with their church's policy office. Um Go meet Lacey. Yeah, we do. We often have people come to our office, whether they're just, you know, we've even had people on like family vacations come by and just say hello and meet our staff and see where we do our work. But we've done other things such as youth groups have met with us and we'll give a, a briefing about what our office does and how to do advocacy. We can even help set up direct meetings with your members of Congress. Um, you know, we definitely encourage people to use our action alert system and, and write emails. But I think one of the biggest ways that you can make an impact is a direct meeting with your elected officials and their staff. And you could come to D.C. to do that. But of course, we'll remind you that you can do that at home. Members of Congress are often at home in district and they all have staff there constantly. So we can help you connect there and set up a meeting so you can share your your passions about policy issues. 
That's excellent. Well, and to conclude our interview, of course, we wanted you here today because you work on refugee and immigration policy issues for the Episcopal Church. Um, Kendall and I are lucky that we get to work with you quite frequently. Could you tell our audience about the Episcopal Church's policy on immigration and refugee issues? What has kind of been the trajectory of our policymaking as a church? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have had really long-standing uh, policy on immigration and refugee issues. It's something that dioceses and uh, and churches have been working on in their own communities for a long time. And of course, our church is comprised of immigrants and refugees who for whom these policies are very important. But we definitely have specific policies. And on my bulletin board that I'm looking at right now, I have a big list of all of our um, immigration and refugee policies. So I can kind of look at some of them and they really run the gamut. I mean, we have one from 1997 from General Convention that says to advocate for a generous program of refugee admissions. So that's one that's focused on refugees. And I think that really speaks to our commitment of the importance of the refugee resettlement program as a humanitarian need. So protecting individuals who absolutely need protection and safety in a new life, but also recognizing that when we admit refugees, it, it benefits everyone and our communities get stronger, our church gets stronger. So I really, I like the, the generality of that one. And then what are some other ones as I'm looking here? Um, one is about um, encouraging the, um, the U.S. government to use alternative practices to detention for immigrants. So talking about rather than detaining children, and mothers um, who are immigrants in a detention center, um, encouraging different types of reforms and alternative practices such as community-based checks and those sorts of issues. We also have one that decries racial profiling as a means of identifying sub sub suspects of immigration violation and oppose identity checks for the purpose of determining immigration status. So as you can see, our policy issues really run the gamut. And I think that last one that I mentioned really ties to the need for us all to remind ourselves that immigration and refugee issues are very tied to racial reconciliation. And we should you know, be aware of that. I hope that among our listening audience might even be people who were at general conventions that voted upon those resolutions or even were people who crafted you know, the initial resolutions, because people who come to general convention are well-informed. They're passionate about issues that pertain to our following Jesus into the world. So it's exciting to hear how, you know, that work trickles through people's hearts, people's prayerful lives and their, their mission, their work into becoming policy for our church. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is pretty amazing. We sent out an action alert um, on temporary protected status or TPS the other week talking about um, the need to protect those individuals. And I had somebody email me back and say, oh, I wrote this resolution a long time ago. And I thought that was really neat and um, loved connecting with her. Tune in next week to learn more about the background of Afghanistan and hear an interview with Abdul Sabor, who immigrated to the U.S. from his native Afghanistan in 2014, where he worked as cultural advisor and instructor for the Counterinsurgency Training Center with the U.S. military. I learned so much in our time with Abdul. Lacey spoke to the importance of the SIV program in today's interview, and our conversation with Abdul next week really solidifies how important it is that we continue this program. It really does. And listeners, I'd encourage you this week, 
as you get ready for next week's episode, check out an organization called Veterans for American Ideals and their campaign hashtag what I fought for. They're this incredible organization. These are men and women who serve bravely in our armed forces, and they are working now to advocate for their Afghan and Iraqi allies who serve them in the field as interpreters, as trainers, as educators. And it's so important for us to hear the voices of these veterans as they stand to support this critical program. And I have to mention that their social media game is strong. Uh, So I highly recommend people check them out on Facebook. Um, It's facebook.com forward slash vets for the number four Amer Ideals. And you can also find them on Twitter with that same handle. So thanks, everybody, for being with us today. Before we go, we do have reminders and announcements. And please listen, because this is so important. Um, EMM is offering its next Love God, Love Neighbor training in Atlanta, May 2nd through 4th. But the reason it's important is that our registration deadline is coming up. It is March the 19th. So this training is incredible. We've already trained folks from more than 20 dioceses. We would love to train you and have you be part of our Love God, Love Neighbor community. It's going to equip you to be an ambassador, ally, and advocate for refugee welcome. So go to our website, episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash LGLN, as in Love God, Love Neighbor, to learn more and get those registrations in. And be a voice of welcome for newly arrived refugees through a virtual gift for friends or family. Show your support to our new neighbors with a tax-deductible gift that provides security and comfort during the first few months of transition. You can order online at episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash gifts hyphen for hyphen welcome. Or make a general donation. We have a strong, healthy network to resettle refugees and provide the programs and services they need for a solid foundation here in the United States. Your donations help us make that work possible. Visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 51555. Ooh, we have text to give now. That's so cool. Our theme song was composed and recorded by Abraham Mawinda Ikondo. Find his music at abrahammawindamusic.com. And a huge thanks goes out to today's reflection author, the Reverend Canon E. Mark Stevenson, Director of Episcopal Migration Ministries. And thanks to Lacey Bromel, the Refugee and Immigration Policy Advisor for the Episcopal Church. Tune in next week and tell your friends about the Hometown Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we are EMM Refugees. Until next week, peace be with you and all those you consider home. <laughs>